I discovered that day, over the course of three hours, hmm. that all that had happened to me was my body started working in a different way. And that my, my, my reality and my relationship literally with my entire life hinged on what I said about my body in that moment when everything changed. And so this kind of comes back to this question of like, well, what's, you know, is this fair? Is this not fair? And instead of going into that space, thinking this is some kind of tragedy that had happened to me, I realized that I could just as reasonably say that that's the day that the stars aligned and Carson's life took a turn that would lead him into the most beautiful future that was prepared for him. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline the Podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of considered online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. You can find me at Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Now, I'm not going to describe my next guest as inspiring, and you'll find out why in this episode, but I will call him a gift. Carson Tula is a performance and empowerment coach based in New York City. His coaching methodology is rooted in the philosophy that our lives are lived inside of the narratives we've created about ourselves, our circumstances, and our experiences. Let that sink in for a moment. How much of the way you identify in the world is based on a story? A story about where you've come from, what you've been through, or what your job title requires you to be? This episode stands for new perspectives and new beginnings, for reframes and radical acceptance. Carson is an educator, an activist, and an advocate. I learned so much in our hour together, and I hope you do too. Before I go, my forever thanks to my beautiful friend, Rick Matthews, for putting Carson's Instagram in front of me. Only one of the best follow recommendations ever. Okay, here's the insightful Carson and I for Offline. So I do always like to start at the beginning, and I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about your childhood and specifically how you think your upbringing shaped who you believed you needed to be. Okay. (laughs) 
So I grew up in a military family. My father is a retired Air Force officer. He's also a clinical psychologist. And so I was the second of six children in a uh, Mormon, an active Mormon family that was also moving around the country every three years with the Air Force. So that's the context that I grew up in. Yeah. So a lot of adventure, a lot of really tight-knit relationships with my siblings, and also a really strong connection to uh, kind of conservative patriotism as well as conservative religious beliefs and practices. So... My family values have very much resembled the values that are consistent with the LDS church. So a lot of my values growing up also reflected that. So among other things, I think some of the most prominent values are to be like Jesus. (laughs) And that meant be kind and be good. It also meant be clean It meant be chaste and, uh, you know, in regards to relationships, specifically, sexuality was to be saved uh, between a man and a woman, a biological man and a woman, or a cisgender man and a woman, once they are married under the law. And only in that situation was it appropriate. So I knew that... What, who I need to, needed to be eventually was um, a good straight man who would marry a good straight woman and we'd have lots of kids and, uh, you know, my life would look very much like the life I grew up in and I was supposed to be, a, you know, a good person and, but really devote my life to God and to the LDS church. Mm. Um. And then, you know, there were separate family values. We were encouraged to have, um, like, a lot of physical activity. We were encouraged. My family is very musical, so I grew up playing the flute and the piano. And everyone in my family, you know, sings and plays an instrument. And we're also, like, very athletic uh, in terms of just family culture. My parents met on in, in college track uh, on on a college track team. And so, you know, there were those family values to be productive, to be a productive citizen, to uh, get a good education, to make a good living. So all of those kind of traditional family values were also included in all of that. Mm, I hear all that. And it feels like a lot. Uh-huh. Did it feel that way to you growing up? Like, I guess what I'm wondering is, was there a lot of internal struggle for you or was there, I guess, a process of suppression that was so strong that you were kind of on autopilot? Hmm. You know, everything fit. I fit into the plan pretty well. I was pretty competitive. I was pretty, I loved sports. Um, I loved what I was doing with music. Uh, I actually, at the time, really loved my relationship with my faith and, the only major piece that wasn't congruent was the fact that I was gay. And so as I started to learn and discover that I was gay, 
that was like the greatest threat to who I had to become. And, you know, it's a fundamental, a fundamental piece of my identity that can't be shifted. And I don't want to shift into a different space. And so, yeah, that was really disruptive, really mm-hmm. disruptive. Everything else was great. I was like, sure, I'll, you know, uh, get a good education and be successful and, you know, do all these things. But like, I just can't do the straight married person thing. Mm-hmm. So the older I got, the closer I got to the expectation that I was going to have to do that. And the more kind of, uh, yeah, the more fear, the more intense the disruption became. Mm-hmm. And so am I right in um, understanding that you came out in 2013? Mm-hmm. Did your parents or your family know before that, or that really was, I guess, news to them and a surprise to them at that time? Yeah. Both of my parents had kind of behind closed doors had conversations about some of my interests or some of my uh, self-expression and how it was (laughs) maybe less stereotypically masculine. And there had been some conversation about that. They told me my dad being a, you know, a social scientist, so to speak, um, was certainly more aware of these behaviors probably than my mom was. And so he knew that I was experiencing these things before I did and probably before she even did. Um, And so they had talked about it. I had mentioned in high school in passing, like I sat them down one time, I vividly remember sitting in the living room and saying, Hey, just so you know, I'm like real, like I'm not into girls and I don't know what's going on. Everyone else around, like all the other guys around me are don't know if I'm a late bloomer. And the conversation was like, okay, well let's see where this goes. Wow, which is kind of beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was it was great. It was a great response. Um, at that point, I wasn't willing to say I am fully, totally into and attracted to my guy friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was not expressed. And then later in 2013, I came home from serving an LDS mission in Chile for two years. And the expectation was like, okay, now you find a girl and you get married. So that was when the shit hit the fan, and I was like, okay, I, it's time to incorporate this piece of my identity, so let them know everything. Mm. Well, let's talk about that year, and I want to talk about that year to bring context to your work as an advocate and an activist today. Mm. It was obviously a year that changed the course of your life forever yes. for two very big reasons. Uh-huh. One of them we've just started to discuss. Share with us... I know you've told this story so many times, but share with us what what happened. Because I know there was a, it was like a three-month time frame where two very major events happened. Totally. Yes. And I have no problem sharing it again. I had, so I mean, like the coming out process was really drawn out. I was very deliberate about it, mostly because of the faith piece. I was really concerned about making sure I knew what I was doing knew what I wanted to do. So I had my first, I had finally started dating in like November of 2013. Had my first boyfriend, had my first kiss. So excited. So 
like stressed, but like, you know, there's like all of these emotions, the intensity, the love, the infatuation, and then the fear, <laughs> it's like all this together. And then on December 30th of 2013, so just a few months later, we're still dating. And I was on winter break. I was studying at university, um, in flute performance and doing pre-med classes, you know, kind of trying to decide what I was going to do with my life and my career. And my family all got together and went to a trampoline park. So, uh, we got up in the morning. It was like five days after Christmas. Cause it was, you know, like December 30th. And so there was still like wrapping paper everywhere and just kind of that fun, mm. you know, you're still eating like junk food and, just playing with your new toys or whatever. And so we went to the trampoline park and um, I stepped onto a long trampoline that ended in a foam pit. And I was jumping on the trampoline, warming up a little bit. And I usually liked to just pull like a hard tuck and try and get like three full rotations in and land in the pit. I had tumbled before and then grew like super tall to six foot five. And so that I couldn't do any of that on the ground. And so having a trampoline was fun for that reason. So I got I got on the trampoline. I pulled the tuck as tight as I could, you know, spun through the air, landed in the bottom of the pit, and heard a slight crack inside of me <laughs> and a sting in my neck. And it wasn't enough to seriously alarm me. I just thought like, crap. I just, you know, I just like tweaked myself or something. So I tried to go to get out of the pit and I just can't move. I'm not in a serious amount of pain, but I start having a hard time breathing. And I realize I can't move my legs. I can't move my body, but I can move my arms a little bit. So I realize I can move an arm and I stick like a limp arm basically out of the pit to, to flag someone down. My dad had watched it happen. My sister had watched everything happen because they were in line, you know, to like do the same thing I did. And um, my dad comes into the pit and I said, dad, I think I'm paralyzed. Um, and, you know, we just had the conversation. He, of course, was like, had freshly... <laughs> seen his son paralyzed and kept saying my boy and you know made sure not to move me called paramedics and then I was flown to the hospital for a spinal fusion um so that I didn't do any more damage to my spinal cord but yeah essentially I broke my sixth and seventh vertebrae in that incident and they had they both damaged my spinal cord paralyzing me from the chest down. So that is, that was the other major event in my uh, 23rd year of life mm -hmm. was, was becoming paralyzed uh, shortly after coming out. Mm -hmm. so. I mean, I've read your story, hearing it. There's so much happening inside my body right now, just hearing that. And I know it's something that you've spoken about a lot. And obviously, it's a story that you've explored extensively internally. Hearing it is just trying to picture, you know, you put yourself in that 
position and that realisation. Um, so I'd like to now talk about identity. And this podcast is an exploration of true self. Who are we without the labels we put on ourselves? And at that time, you know, you've spoken about your upbringing and you had a lot of labels and there was a lot of expectation on who you would sort of be. How did you even begin to reconcile who you were in this new reality? Because you went from identifying, I guess, as, well, not straight, but also not gay at that (laughs) point. Totally, yeah, yeah. Um, and an able-bodied man into then being a queer, differently abled man, like in a three-month uh-huh. period. So I'm just wondering, help us understand how you even got hold of that. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. The first thing I'll say in this conversation is that um, the best, most appropriate term to use is disabled. Oh, okay. So, I will be identifying throughout as a disabled man and the disability community. Okay. I'm so thankful so, for that. I did so yeah. much research to be prepared to speak to you and to be accurate. And so yes. much of what I read was to use the term differently abled. Got it. And so I am so thankful for the correction. Um, yeah. yeah. So I value that. I will say, just a little side note here, you know, this is still an ongoing conversation that's a little bit controversial in the disability community because the word disability has come with a lot of stigma. So a lot of disabled people are reclaiming that, kind of like the word queer mm-hmm. has been reclaimed for, for queer people. So, um, so know that there are some people who might identify as differently abled, and it's, of course, important to... Uh, address them and identify them in ways that are comfortable to them. Um, But most of the consensus is that people like to be identified as either disabled or a person with a disability. So I just use both interchangeably. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very appreciative. Of course. Of course. It's such a big question as well. Like, I just don't even know where you start with like, you wake up in hospital with this full realization of what's happened, how do you even begin to identify? Like, how do you make contact with your identity? Mm-hmm. It's such a good question. And it has been the journey of the last seven years of my life. And I continue to answer your question for myself right? Like who, who is Carson? And when I peel back these labels, what is that underneath and who I am, who am I underneath all of these things? Um, I remember sitting in my hospital bed just a few days after my spinal fusion surgeries. And it was pitch black in my, my hospital room. And I had my phone out because I could still kind of text a little bit. My hands are paralyzed a little bit. And I had written paralyzed, paralyzed, paralyzed. And that's all that was on the notes section of my phone. Because I just kept replaying that word in my head. Because that was now my reality. And I was as prepared to identify as disabled or paralyzed as you (laughs) are Mm. right now in your life, right? It's not on the radar. And... Because I guess it's different I sat there... 
your sexuality mm-hmm. in that you, sorry to interrupt, but it's different no, no. than your sexuality because I guess you'd been reconciling that for a long time in your mind, right, in terms of that new label. But this one, as you say, it was like, it's like it came out of nowhere. Yeah, it was so abrupt. There was no um, kind of gradual assimilation of that identity. Like I had a lot of time, I mean, I had 23 years to kind of slowly assimilate this this queer identity. And then suddenly, literally in the blink of an eye, I'm permanently paralyzed. So over the next several years, the biggest question I had to ask is, who is Carson? And the biggest question that I kept asking myself was like, what is Carson worth, as strange as that sounds? Or where do I get my value from as a human being now? Um, Because suddenly, like you said, I went from having all of this privilege and being a human being that is really validated by society. Um, You know, I had... I was at the top of the... (laughs) A hierarchy of privilege, and then incorporated these new identities that I had learned throughout my life devalued people or depreciated the value of human beings, like internalized ableism, internalized homophobia. And so the question I had was, like, am I depreciated? Have I depreciated as a result of all of these changes? And I struggled so much to know how to answer that question. And what I really struggled with was feeling worthless as a disabled man now and just entering into the LGBTQ community. Now I knew I was going to be showing up on dates in a wheelchair with atrophied legs and swollen ankles or something. Right. And still learning how to use this body, not knowing how to use it in terms of sex and intimacy and feeling just like, I have no idea who I am. I have no idea what I'm worth because I had really leaned on my abilities, like my flute playing or my my swimming, you know, we have a checklist of things that that define who we are and that we can kind of lean on to say, oh, you know, I'm really good at this or I'm this kind of person. And we can sometimes unknowingly outsource our worth to those things and let them provide us with a sense of evidence that we're good enough. And suddenly all those things were gone in my life and I was left with this question, am I still worth something if I have nothing, if I have no evidence of my worth like I've had in the past? And part of what I have discovered through all of this time to, you know, to kind of consolidate all of these discoveries is this one truth that is human beings are worthy because they are human beings. And I don't have to have evidence or a source or proof in order to claim that I am worthy of love and belonging and that I am valuable um, just as I am. And it took a long time to get there because I kept wanting to put something back in the evidence space. So when all of the flute playing and the and the skills were gone because of paralysis, I thought, oh, well, then I'm going to put being a good person in that space. So I'm, I'm now worthy because I'm a good person and I'm inspiring <laughs> or something <laughs> like that, right? 
but I found I was still playing the same game where something had to provide me with a sense of being whole and complete. And the reason, I know you asked about identity and I'm going into a space of worth, but identity really is often tied to our sense of worth. Mm. Um, Especially in a world that places different value on different identities still. So I had struggled my entire life feeling worthy because I was gay. And finally at 23, I started when I came out to discover that, well, maybe I can be worthy and valuable as a gay man, as a gay man. (laughs) Uh, And then I added on this other layer of identity with, with paralysis, paralysis and disability. Um, But the interesting thing was the process was the same. It was me identifying these lies that I was telling myself about having a depreciated value because of a particular identity. So Mm -hmm. that was the process that I kind of went through to just peel everything back, reclaim my worth, and then find my true kind of unadulterated self-expression as a human being. Do you know if like, if I could write a promotion for this podcast which I actually sometimes have a really hard time articulating what this project is about. You have just so beautifully explained the conversations that I have, regardless Mm. of situation or label or how we identify. It really is like, it makes me quite emotional actually, because I've never really had anyone tell it back to me that way. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I feel like, Obviously, this would have been an extremely dark time for you. And yeah, I think so many of us are learning that, you know, we can hear all of the advice and the knowledge, but it isn't until we actually have experiences and particularly hard ones that we're able to embody knowledge and advice. You know, we can hear stuff, but then when we're in it, then you that's when you kind of move into the embodiment. Yes. And so through that lens... I guess there's this assumption that I've been kind of playing with myself that no experience is ever wrong. It's only that kind of our Western obsession with labeling something good or bad, right or wrong. Yes. Um, But I do wonder in your situation, is there an unfair? And then part of what made me curious was also how you thought about your faith as Mm. well, because yeah. So what comes up for you when I say that? Because to me, I hear your story and I feel like this is so fucking deeply unfair. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, where where do you sit with that? It's such a good question. I have a story. Okay, <laughs> Can I tell you a story? <laughs> I love stories, please. Okay, so I like humor. I like to use humor. I like I like a little. I like to dabble in dark humor. <laughs> it makes people uncomfortable, especially around paralysis. Um, and with my family, I would jokingly call the day of my accident the day of my death, which doesn't sound funny, but it was so uh, kind of jarring for my family that'd be like, "How dare? Like, how could you know?" And then I would like laugh, and they would shake their heads and laugh with me. But it was like the day of my death. But I, I said it jokingly. But I that was my relationship with the day of my accident and paralysis was this is the day my life changed and I lost everything, you know. Um, 
And so it's 2018 and it's June 16th and it's a blazing hot day in Utah. And I'm sitting next to my 13 year old sister. She's my youngest sister. I'm sitting next to her and I'm dropping her off. We had gone on like a brother sister date and (laughs) yes. And I made some reference to December 30th being the day of my death. And Kate says, what if we called that the day of your rebirth? And I thought it was cute. And I kind of like met, you know, patted her on the head, so to speak. And it's like, oh, you know, of course. And in my head, I'm like, well, of course not. That is not the day of my rebirth. That was the day I was paralyzed forever. Um, (laughs) You know, and so I dropped her off and I gave her a kiss and I went home. And I, I was going to the gym. So I was going to go home, you know, throw on a tank top and shorts and go to the gym. And I could not stop thinking about what she said because what had happened was I broke my neck and I became paralyzed on December 30th. And what I made that mean was my life ended that day. And I was destined for something else. Like that was an interruption. And then here my 13-year-old sister is telling me, well, why isn't that the day that your life started? And it sounded so trite and so simple, but I could not logically or reasonably validate one of our interpretations over the other. Who was to say? Mm. It's nothing but an interpretation or an assessment or a story. Who no- I mean, who knows what destiny is supposed to be? Who knows what lies in the future if you believe in that kind of thing, right? And I couldn't tell you. She couldn't tell you. And I discovered that day, over the course of three hours, (laughs) that all that had happened to me was my body started working in a different way. And that my, my, my reality and my relationship literally with my entire life hinged on what I said about my body in that moment when everything changed. And so this kind of comes back to this question of like, well, what's, you know, is this fair? Is this not fair? And instead of going into that space, thinking this is some kind of tragedy that had happened to me, I realized that I could just as reasonably say that that's the day that the stars aligned and Carson's life took a turn that would lead him into the most beautiful future that was prepared for him. Mm. That is as reasonable as saying, what a tragedy, your life ended, you know, and, and, and you should be sad for the rest of your life. You should look back and think, oh, what a terrible thing that happened to me. Mm-hmm. But it all comes back to the stories that we all tell about the things and the events that happen in our lives. And for the first time, I was sitting in the gym and I looked into the mirror. I'll never forget this. And for the first time, I saw my whole body. It wasn't like paralyzed Carson and working Carson in the top half, you know. It was like, no, my body has been here the entire time. Nothing is wrong with it. It's whole and complete and perfect. It works the way it works, and it works the way it doesn't work, or doesn't work the way it doesn't work, you know. And it just is here, and I've been here the whole time. And 
my life is, is so much different and I will never pretend like I don't have so many more barriers as a disabled man. But all the rest of the value placement and the meaning and stuff that really does bring people down into such a dark place, I have mastered that conversation. Mm. Because my paralysis is not a problem. And it's you just know, the way my body is. Yeah. What I was just reflecting on as you were speaking is, is my immediate jump to this being unfair is this my own internalized ableism, you know? Yes. Yeah, yes. It it's it's a compl- Well, it's a complicated answer because I will tell you on one hand that I certainly grieved being able to perform and have a body that responded and felt everything, you know, just the way I wanted it to. I miss feeling grass on my toes. I miss strangely, I miss stretching so much. Like the feeling of being on a carpet and and getting into the splits. <laughs> that was like, I loved stretching. I loved kind of like, you know, I had been a gymnast growing up. Anyway, those kind of things I dream about, I miss. I cry thinking about them. My hands are paralyzed. I couldn't play the flute anymore. Couldn't play the, I can't play the piano anymore. There's grief there. But the ableism piece was feeling like those changes made me less valuable as a human being. Mm. And they happen at the exact same time you lose all of your function while you've got this internalized ableism storm happening. And it's really hard to tease out which one is which. Mm. Because I felt the same way. I thought, oh, well, you know, if I mourn any kind of uh, piece of my ability, I am... You know, that's internalized ableism. And I don't think it is. Okay. I think having the experience of being less worthy, uh, less lovable, uh, the experience of having something wrong with you, that's the internalized ableism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm learning a lot here. Um, does that make sense? It how really I'm kind of separating no, those things? Yeah. And I'm thankful because I'm learning a lot. Um, and I'm appreciative of you taking the time to explain it. Of course. Be gentle with me. Um, Of course. I have all the space for your process. (laughs) Can you tell us about what self-discovery and evolution looked like for you in the years that followed? And I guess I mean that in a practical sense. There's a lot of people searching for self, Mm. you know, and want the tools. And what did you gravitate towards? Like, where did it start? Was it as classic as going to books? It was partially that, absolutely. I have always been... the question. One of the questions I get a lot is, how do you stay so motivated and so... Like, how, where did you get the strength to push through all of this mess? <laughs> the confusion, the storm. And for me, it was being in touch with this part of me that knew that there was something very beautiful about my life and that I would, that life could be glorious and exciting and worth living. And when I went inside of myself and when there were quiet moments and when I would journal, 
I could, and I feel it right now, I could, there's this warmth, there's this sense that um, there's a, a beautiful future waiting for me. And I could also see that there was a gap between how I was living and that future. I remember being on my mission. I was a closeted 19-year-old missionary in the streets of Chile, and I turned to my companion and I said, I just feel like there's a Carson inside of me that is going to do incredible things and is going to live this incredible life and I have no idea how to access him. And I just knew that there was so much shit in the way. Mm. And what it was is there were all of these barriers to my self-expression. Barriers like not being out, not being able to adopt, uh, you know, this identity. Anyway, you know, all of the barriers. And so for me, being in touch with that dream, that sense was the thing that kept me searching and striving and looking. And so I went to books and I did a lot of journaling, um, a lot, a lot of writing and journaling because that's where I can most clearly hear my own voice. Cause I, you know, out in the world, I can get all these tools and all of these things, but, um, they have a tendency to drown out my voice and I have a tendency to let them drown out my voice. Cause I, I like theories and I like, um, you know, tools. Mm-hmm, me too. And if I'm not careful, I can lose, I can lose my own voice. So there was like a song inside of me that had to be sung. And so what I kept going back to was like, I have to be this song. What is the next action to take? What is the next conversation to have? What is the next barrier to tear down that's in the way of me singing this song Mm. that's inside of my heart. Does that make sense? Like the song being self-expression. Absolutely makes sense. And I know you went on to immerse yourself in transformational education. Yes. Which led you to your profession today as a performance and empowerment coach. Mm -hmm. So your methodology, and you've actually mentioned it a little bit, but we'll clarify it again now. Your methodology is rooted in the philosophy that our lives are lived inside of the narratives we created about ourselves, our circumstances, and our experiences. When I read that, I was like, fuck, yes, they are. That is it. <laughs> um, I'd love some, to spend some time exploring that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a broad question or too broad of a question, but like, what does that actually mean? Like, if I read that, out and people are listening, you've kind of got to read it a few times for it to really land. But mm-hmm. yeah, how do you how do you talk about that? Yeah. It has been bringing together a lot of different pieces of my education. So partly philosophy, right? What does it mean to be a human being? And then also, I'm a psychology major. I have a degree in psychology. And um, so I've had access to or some education around the fact that human beings, we know, live in a reality that is very much manufactured and created by our neurology, by our brains, that doesn't actually represent reality. 
<laughs> you know, we, our brains are great at forming this experience around us so that we can do things like get fed and, and survive and have sex and have babies and all of these other things that keep us alive and functioning. But we know that our brains are actually not terribly reliable at forming accurate portrayals of like the universe and what's around us. Mm -hmm. So all that being said, humans use tools like language and perception and consciousness to create their realities. So it's in the assessment of things that happen in the physical world that we live our lives, not necessarily the actual physical world. So an example of this is what I had explained previously about my spinal cord injury. If I look at what happened to me, all that happened is I broke my neck. Like the bones just moved. They hit my spinal cord. The nerve stopped working. And that's all that happened. No drama. Mm. When I add in the story, when I add in the interpretations, the assessments, all of those things, that's where my reality lives. And so it was in that moment that I, like, again, kind of discussed earlier where I realized that my interpretation of the the events of my life were my reality and that I could look at many other places in my life where I was disempowered or suffering to look at what meaning was behind those events that, um, that I had added the meaning I had added to those events. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and when I looked and was able to start to navigate the stories and navigate the interpretations, I found freedom in being able to give some of those up and create something more empowering in their space. Like saying it's the day of my rebirth mm. rather than it's the day of my death. It's like what I was saying before about the, um, the Western obsession with labeling good, bad, right, wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit of a Vedic sort of tenant, but like it's the duality that brings the agony. Mm-hmm. And we do that to ourselves. And so you just kind of think about it and you're like, and so maybe this is a question for you. Why do we do that? Why are we wired this way? Do you think? Yeah. Like, how do you think about that? That's such a good question. Um, you know, Brene, Brene Brown says we're a meaning-making species. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's just that's just how we have evolved or been created whatever you believe um and i'm sure that there are like scientists and people much smarter than me who can tell you what all sorts of theories about why we are this way um and i I, you know if we look from an evolutionary perspective i know that survival is certainly a piece of this Mm -hmm. right by creating meaning we can do things like love we can do things like connect we can create we can um build futures we can i mean it it was the greatest tool for survival right um so if nothing else it has helped us survive for a very long time Mm, the analysis um (laughs) (laughs) 
One of the things, like you're an advocate for many things, um, but one of the things you're particularly passionate about is rewriting the quote-unquote disabled people are inspiring narrative. (laughs) Yes. Um, When non-disabled people participate in that dialogue, I wondered if you could explain to us what we're actually doing because, you know, we would think that we're doing the right thing by profiling and platforming and labelling inspiring but what is it that we're actually doing by participating in that in that narrative? Mm-hmm. I think a few things happen, and like most things with disability, it's comp- it's complicated. It's kind of complex because sometimes I do think disabled people, in particular, if they live powerful lives, are super badass and incredibly inspiring to me. right? But it's not because they're disabled. So what happens when an able-bodied person says, you're, you know, you're so inspiring. It puts, it does a couple of things. It puts disabled people up on a pedestal where they're required to be inspiring no matter what they do, even if they're not doing anything actually inspiring. Mm -hmm. And you can see this a lot just because, I push myself down the road, someone will stop me and be like, you are so inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I want to be like, actually, I'm a dick. Today I'm being a dick or I've been a jerk to my boyfriend or I'm, you know, (laughs) a million other things, the least of which is inspiring. (laughs) But it's this idea, I think behind all of that is this, this expression that your life must suck. Your life is really hard. I would not want to experience what you're experiencing. And by being alive, you are inspiring to me because I would not want the life you live from mm-hmm. where I'm standing, right? I think that that's behind some of that. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, what does real allyship, <laughs> real allyship for disabled people actually look and sound like? Like most allyship, I think it starts with being an intentional listener, believing in the experiences of disabled people, um, like getting a real education on ableism specifically, because there is a lot of disability advocacy out there, and there's a lot of disability advocacy that is still rooted in ableism. Yes. And it's unseen by a lot of, even by a lot of advocates, by a lot of people, able-bodied people who are wanting to participate in allyship, but can't see that there's this underlying, we're going to, you know, make the best out of this shitty situation for you kind of a deal. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So getting an education on actually like, what does ableism look like? What does it, uh, where do I find it in myself? Um, is absolutely step one. And then participating in voting in a way that, of course, creates greater accessibility. Um, Essentially, one of the big pieces that disabled people face is a lack of accessibility to being able to participate in society. 
So doing things like adding captions to videos looks like allyship because, you know, uh, making that accessible to deaf people or including ramps in spaces or making sure that venues are accessible before you invite a whole load of people, some of which may be disabled. So it's making sure that physical spaces are also inclusive and that all kinds of bodies can participate. Um, and then, of course, beyond that, we get into, you know, greater legislation kind of things, mm -hmm. which depends on what country you're in. Um, but if we boil all that down, what we're looking at is where does the system not invest in the thriving and participation of disabled people? Mm -hmm. And that is where ableism is expressed. We can find it just by knowing where a country or where a business is willing to put resources to allow for the participation of people with disabilities. So those Thank are some, some ideas of how to start allyship. That's very valuable for us to learn. Um, another key thing that you're an advocate for is the intersection of disability and sexuality. I know there's been a lot of interest around your sex life. <laughs> I follow you on Instagram and I, I love those questions. Um, a lot of questions around if you have a sex life, and of course you do. Um, yes. And part of what I've learned from sort of following you and listening to your story is that this belief that your sex life is actually better than it was before your mm. spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. What needs to change when we talk about disability and sexuality? I think that the first thing that needs to change is this idea that sex has to look a certain way that immediately excludes the experience of disabled people. So when we think about sex, most people have an idea of what that looks like. It includes maybe some kind of penetration or some kind of like use of genitals, you know, those kind of things traditionally. Um, and, and also experiencing orgasm in a stereotypical way. And I think that we need to broaden our concept of what sex is and what sex looks like. What is pleasure? What does pleasure look like? How can you experience pleasure? So having a disability opened up a whole world of exploration and discovery around pleasure and around sex because there was no norm on the table. Mm -hmm. So I got to basically, the only metric I had is, does it feel incredible? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a pretty good metric. <laughs> it's a great metric. And then you just try as many things as you want to try and, and, and do as many things as you want to do while you create that outcome. And that could look like a million different things. Um, and so, yeah, I am very passionate about liberating people who think that sex is one kind of position, one kind of way, because there is a whole world out there of sex and intimacy that can free people up because whenever you have an expectation or a norm, whenever you're, you know, if you're a dude and you feel like you have to ejaculate every time, or if you're a girl and you feel like, yeah, you, you know, mm. 
or, or, you know, regardless of how you identify, of course, in terms of, um, you know, gender identity and things like that. If there's an expectation of how your body should respond, there's space for like a disappointment as well. Yeah. So if we can get rid of all of these expectations and make it an exploration and a discovery process with a partner, even, you know, by yourself, suddenly there is an incredible amount of freedom to just do what works. Mm. And I find that that allows for so much more connection. There is such a lower level of anxiety around quote unquote performance because it's like I keep saying, just a discovery Mm. in that very moment. It's like a spectrum of pleasure. And I think in many ways, I don't know, is it kind of, um, do we, do, do able-bodied people miss out on the more subtle sides of our sex lives and our sexuality because, exactly, (laughs) because we can do the norm. So we go straight to that to reach this outcome, which is climax. Yes. That, yeah, I mean, I think about that. I think, (laughs) I have to tell you, I think so. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) And the reason I think so is just because there are like so many different things. And one of the things we know about psych, just, you know, from the study of psychology is that the same kind of positions, the same kind of sensations and stimulus slowly lose, there's a habituation process and they slowly lose their kick or their punch. So switching things up and building new stimuli to have different kind of climax in different kind of ways just makes anything possible. So I always say that I think able-bodied people could learn a great deal about sex from disabled people. Mm. And we just got we just have to keep talking about it. Yeah, I'm glad we are. Um, I read that you said you have what's called a high palatability within the diff- uh, within the disabled community, and mm. that your body fits the stereotype of many, I guess, able-bodied masculine men. Mm-hmm. And then for you, that's actually a form of privilege, which this mm-hmm. is really interesting for me to read. Um, has that been self-limiting when it comes to your advocacy in any way? I think it has threatened to be self-limiting because I know that I do experience a certain a certain amount of privilege because of this palatability. You know, my body looks... Like you just said, it fits a particular mold of what we sometimes think a body should look like. I have two legs, I have two arms, the proportions are generally, uh, again, stereotypical for for a man or a masculine body. Um, and that definitely opens doors yeah. that I don't think would be open otherwise. So it's a, I have mixed feelings about it because on one hand I want to ensure that I use my voice to elevate all bodies all kinds of bodies all shapes all sizes having all sorts of numbers of limbs whatever they have and making sure that I use my space to claim the worth of those bodies as well and to have people not forget, no, ju- just because I, you know, my body looks a certain way doesn't mean I'm just advocating for this kind of body because it's palatable. But I'm 
working to elevate the experience and the worthiness of all these other bodies. So there's that piece. And um, I think that also dovetails with just having a responsibility with that privilege. I have gone back and forth thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't really try to push the conversations around ableism as much because I experienced so much privilege that maybe someone else should be doing that. Um, but then also realizing like I have a great amount of, uh, they're like able-bodied people listen to me in a different way. I also think there's an interesting privilege that does come with having being someone who was born able-bodied and acquired a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think that able-bodied people can see themselves in, in my life experience and they see me not so much as other as they see me as a, like a tragic hero or something. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely Kidding. a rela- relatability. <laughs> you know totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because you think, cause, cause you know, I was like you mm. and you can say that could happen to me. I could be like him. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there's some kind of bridge of connection and I've got your ear in a different way because in some kind of way, we're both part of the same community now. Well, we're talking right now. So that's proof that's right. of that, isn't it? <laughs> yes. um, one thing, I've got a couple more questions for you before I let you go. Um, I'm curious about as someone who also works as a coach and my coaching is sort of like conscious career coaching and business coaching. So you're an empowerment coach, um, but you've admitted before that you can use that label as a weapon against yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. Empowerment coaches can't ever feel disempowered. (laughs) Uh Totally not accurate, but of course how we feel. How do you transcend the pressure to always be needing to feel positive or be positive and that because you have the techniques and the tools, you know, it's quite often like I can write someone's business strategy and not apply it to my own business. Right, (laughs) right, right. Absolutely. How do you you sort of transcend that? Oh, gosh. Do you have time for another story? Yeah, I do. (laughs) So today... I'm going to tell you a story about how I was wildly disempowered today and what happened. And I thought about this because I thought this is just perfect <laughs> for being on a podcast later. Um, it is rare that I fall out of my wheelchair. It is rare that I that anything happens that gets my ass on the ground. <laughs> and um, the subway station closest to me I live in New York City. The subway station closest to me recently became accessible, which is incredibly exciting. So me and my boyfriend today were going into the city and we were excited to use the subway. And we were on our way and I was on my phone. I looked down at my phone for a second right as he was pushing me. Uh, He was pushing my wheelchair. We hit a little bit of a dip and the front foot plate of my wheelchair caught and threw me straight onto the road like out of my wheelchair like a fish out of the water sitting on the road this was like five hours ago um very 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 rarely happens so you know we do whatever we need to do i get myself back in my chair i can transfer and that's fine and we go on our way and i am pissed because i was like like, whose fault is it? I am so mad. Like, it's his fault. Or maybe it was my fault because I didn't tell him I had to look down at my phone. You know? So, he had an appointment and I was going to wait for him for a little bit. So, we get into Manhattan 
and I roll up into this, uh, into Union Square, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just so mad. And I have been, okay, so typically, I would be someone who would start using some empowerment tools and be like, ah, well, let's take a look at what I'm making this mean, and let's take a look at what emotions I'm feeling and all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and try and kind of ev- uh, evade or avoid the actual experience that I was having. And instead of doing that today, I just stopped and I just started bawling. I just cried. And it was all there was, that's what was there. And it's funny you ask this question because I'm constantly kind of going back between like, okay, when do I use this, these empowerment tools and do I ever use them at the expense of an emotional experience or can I be deeply emotional and crying right now and still be empowered? And I just let myself sob today. Just be, and I don't even know why. I was just so mad and I was so pissed and I was just like, this isn't fair. And also it was like raining and late, just, just late in the day and... Uh, I just sat with it and I didn't judge it and I didn't use a secret empowerment tool. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, and it came and it went, you know, it was like what my soul had to say. Mm -hmm. And I just like asked myself if I needed anything else and there was nothing else I needed except for like a, like a little mini cuddle hug session with my boyfriend. We're just like reconnected and, talked it out and that's that's it that's done. It's and like i find no injuries the tears are they were what was most relevant and i'm thinking about this a lot in my own work is when does the positivity become toxic and when do the tools become um bypassing in nature of you know well said yeah and I think that's you know for anyone listening that works as a coach in any sort of form um I think that might this might be valuable for them to hear you know that we're we need to be in a constant state of self-analysis of we can't drink our own kool-aid you know what I mean like (laughs) totally um I mm. I think the difference was that I have been working harder at listening to Carson's voice, like like that, like what I was saying before that that piece of me that is speaking or has something to say that wants something that needs something. Um, and in the past, I would have been more likely to say, "Oh, I'm having these emotions. I know like this particular programming, and I can employ these particular tools to do this thing." With and, and doing that without getting touched with like that soulful piece of me that just needed to cry. Mm. And then I can employ all of the other tools as well, and they are very helpful. But I am prioritizing feeling and then employing the tools. And I find that to be totally effective and enlivening and fulfilling and human and hard and uncomfortable and all the things, mm-hmm. right? Um, I have a final question for you. Um, I finish every episode by asking my guests the same question. 
And so we have been on this exploration of self together and that's really why offline exists to, to unpack who are we outside of the labels and the expectations, the job titles, the social media followings, these kind of personas that we build of ourselves. Um, when you're sitting in your true self and all of that mm-hmm. stripped away, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that question? Hmm. What comes up for me is love. Um, Like fierce love. It's love um, and it's also like take no shit love. It is, I will fight for you and your self-expression and your place in this world. And I am, I am dedicated to liberating the human race so that people are free to know themselves and experience being whole and complete. That's what I live for. And that is what I value most in my life and in myself is just that being so alive and so filled with love and connection. That's what's there. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Um, I am not going to call you inspiring, but I am going to call you a gift (laughs) because you are. And for anyone who's not already following you on Instagram, I at the very least, encourage them to do that. And then also, you know, I think you've really shown your um, your value as a coach in this conversation. Um, mm. I might even book a session myself. <laughs> but I want to thank you for um, sitting in now a dark room for me, <laughs> having an honest conversation yeah. about about self. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh my gosh, of course, this has been such a gift. I actually have been looking forward to this all day. Uh, I have been listening to the podcast, you know, like eating it up so that I um, just wanted to, you know, get to know you vicariously through the podcast. But uh, yeah, I have totally been looking for this because I had a hunch that it would be a delicious conversation. And it has been. <laughs> Me too. So thank you so and much. And the hope's always there, isn't it? And you just got to... Go in hopeful and, I mean, I've just learned that, you know, guests give as much as they can um, in the moment and in the circumstances and also based on the shape of their day. And so it's interesting to learn what type of day you had and how that perhaps shaped our conversation as well. So I feel exactly the same. Like I don't like to put expectations on it, but I was like, this is even better than I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) Thank God. But I appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you're doing and elevating the voices of people who are on this journey to express their deepest, most beautiful, messy, glorious selves. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. 
Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.